Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 154, I Knew You Weren't Dead. This week we're discussing season 1, episode 9 of Battlestar Galactica, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, and season 6, episode 2 of Buffy, Bargaining Part 2. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. So, uh, BSG, mm-hmm. tie, tie me up, tie me down. <laughs> and uh, Ty certainly does go through some ups and downs in this episode, right? Sure. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that's So, okay, I know you have some production notes. Do any of them cover the title? Because, like, other than, you know, the fact that, like, we have the Thai family now. Uh, like, I don't know that there's, I don't really know that I get the title. <laughs> no, I didn't plan to talk about that. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I think there was something I, that I read or listened to a commentary. Um, hold on. Let's see if Google. Well, Google well I was going to say, if you want to do your production notes, I can I can maybe try to look. Sure. Up okay. According to Wikipedia, the title the title was originally "Secrets and Lies," but I think if I'm remembering right from whatever I read, I think they had this as an alternate humorous title. It was one of those like "Secrets and Lies" colon and then goofy title, and then I think they eventually just decided the goofy title was better than the like generic "Secrets and Lies" title. So they end up going with that. Um, I think I'm not making that up. Um, but I didn't actually check. It sounds it good. It sounds good. It certainly should be the reason. Um, but, I mean, actually, I should have looked that up because I was kind of thinking, like, with the title, like, yeah, you're right. I, the ups and downs hadn't occurred to me. Like, the kind of roller coaster ride that he goes on. But also... Um, the ways, which I think we'll get to when we talk about Ellen, but the ways in which uh, her marriage is sort of like, you kind of get this like bonds of matrimony thing. Like she is not an altogether liberating, you know, figure. Like, yes, he loves her. Yes, they in some ways are liberated when they're reunited, but also there's this kind of idea of like, she's connected with his, like like Adama says, with the worst instincts that he has. So like, you know, they're kind of not, you know, necessarily uh, good for each other. So maybe it kind of points to that. Like, I don't know how they're sort of, I don't know, restrained by the presence of the other. Mm. But whether that had anything to do with why they named it that, I don't know. So, according to a Ronald D. Moore podcast, there you go. Uh, he, he says, uh, looking at Time Me Up, Time Me Down versus Secrets and Lies, he said, I saw those titles on the script. I knew we had to go with Time Me Up, Time Me Down. It was too good. Too good a title to let go on the cutting room floor. There you go. That's it. That, so, and um, that was basically my memory. It was like, when you have a really memorable title, it's probably good to go with yeah. the with the punchy memorable title. Um one one other interesting tidbit here though is he says that um 
It actually started out as a very different episode. It was going to be more of a riff off of Crimson Tide, the movie, mm-hmm. um, which I remember seeing. Um, and I remember it being like about a submarine where like the EXO, you know, takes over, mm. um, you know, basically. But it's more of a mutiny mm. thing than a than a this kind of thing, I believe, if I remember correctly. Interesting. Um, but anyway... Uh, Very interesting because that's not at all where Ty's story ends up going. It's very much about the unity between him and Adama, you know, and their, his reliance on him as the EXO. And, and I know we're like jumping way to the end and this is not at all what we planned, but Hey, you know, whatever. Um, We're crazy like that. I know, just blowing in the wind here. Uh, you know, not only the unity, but but the fact that that unity, like clearly Ellen Tai is not a good influence mm-hmm. um, and is clearly a divisive person and, and like seems legitimately to be trying to be a divisive person. Sure. Um, but the fact that like both of, both Adama and Tai and you know, Saul, Ty, uh, don't allow that to happen. And, and Adama's even like, well more reconciliatory than even like, he has been to his own son at times. Like, you know, so there's, you know, there's just that. And I say reconciliatory, I don't feel like they they even got to a point where they had to reconcile. Like, like he, you know, even at the end there where it's like, oh you know you did your job and he sticks out his hand and you know just keep doing your job kind of thing even if you're drunk and like you know fornicating with your wife during you know uh when you're on duty and that kind of stuff that's okay as long as you do a good job like (laughs) like i feel that's really permissive of adama like you know why not throw in like a casual friday here (laughs) like (laughs) you know but uh but yeah just that fact that like like even maybe to the point where he shouldn't be as permissive and and they shouldn't maybe be quite as unified as mm. they are but but you know maybe that's the question is is this the mark of a good leader in that like he he knows sort of when not to press mm. the hard uh you know discipline or is it a weakness is it a flaw in Adama's character that he has, you know, this friendship for Ty. And, you know, right. we'll have the rest of the series to explore right. that kind of thing. But I feel like, like you said, like the it's, it's not just that there's unity, which there clearly is, yeah. but even that, like, there's unity in the face of this clearly intentionally divisive influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is Ellen. Yeah. Um, I just listened to our first podcast on the first episode of the mini series because we're going to be posting that. So I was listening to our discussion and talking about um, Adama's uh, soft touch when it comes to the, the character, the, the people that he feels, you know, affection for and close to. Mm-hmm. And we like, obviously Starbuck, but like, obviously Ty mm-hmm. doesn't recognize that he is one of those two. And it does seem right. like, it goes under like, yeah, like as long as you do your job and and we stay BFFs, then, you know, it's all cool, bro, that kind of thing. But like, yeah, it it gets dangerous because 
it's not just about does Ellen tear us apart personally on a friendship level, but the suggestion is potentially she will, uh, she might influence his ability to do his job well. Like, you know, mm. that's, you know, cause we've seen like, you know, the miniseries sort of starts with drunken Ty, who's not so good at his job. Um, and then sure. he's been, you know, uh, cleaning it up the last couple weeks. And now here comes Ellen with all of these things, you know, all of these old habits sort of back into his life. So like, yeah, he does a good, sure. he does a good job at the end of this episode, but again, it remains to be seen whether that will continue to be the case going forward. Um, right. You know, so yeah, we totally jumped ahead on that, but um, all right. Let me, <laughs> let me say my quick production notes. Um, the first being uh, this was written by Jeff Vlaming, I guess you say, who also wrote Litmus. So another returning uh, writer, although interestingly um, directed by Edward James Olmos. Um, the mm. first step. And I, I actually noticed. There that. you go. <laughs> um, and I think it's uh, whether or not it would hit you without knowing that he's the director. I think once you do know it, the style is really interesting. Like it, I feel like the direction so far has been very much trying to establish that realism, you know, of like, this is the real gritty world that, you know, like of uh, cameras that zoom in on ships, you know, as if there was really a camera there or, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas this definitely things jump out to me as having a more sort of lyrical style. Um, like, hmm. you know, just certain shots that like, I didn't think of anything up to this point as having really memorable comp composition of shots before, but there's things like, you know, when Hilo and Sharon are like running down the hall and they're that those lights sort of go into the distance down that tunnel vision. It's just like, interesting like sure. i don't think we've had anything like that before um and he shoots number six really interestingly like she's like a disembodied voice a lot of the time like when she's with baltar like he's talking but even more so than usual there's like nobody there she's sort of you get i get more of a sense of her being in his head and i don't think anything's changed it's just the way that you know edward james almost chooses to approach it um so I think he directs another couple episodes. So um, I want to try to pay attention to like his little styles and everything sort of going forward. Um, sure. And then the last thing I wanted to point out was um, that we get Kate Vernon as Ellen, you know, introduced in this episode. And uh, in the miniseries, when they have Ty burning the hole through Ellen's eye in the picture, it's not Kate Vernon, yeah. you know, it's some other actress and then they go in and replace her for you know so when he throws the photo away in this episode this time it is Kate Vernon so like sure. whereas I think Zach is always Zach like even in the photos it's like the same actor in the memories but um you know not that that's important but this is the first time that we're seeing uh you know Kate Vernon's Ellen I guess yeah 
it it's not important, but it is because it always is a little disconcerting when when that happens when they have to like replace mm-hmm. an actor who maybe you only ever see in flashbacks or whatever. Sure, um, sure. Yeah. Not maybe disconcerting isn't even the right word. Like maybe that's overstating it, but you know, just like well confusing or whatever. Like some and it makes that. me wonder. It makes me wonder to what extent they knew Ellen would be a player because. Like, Zach wasn't in the miniseries, but they used the same actor in the photos and in the flashbacks when he's in season one. So I wonder if they thought, okay, we're going to need an actor, so we better cast somebody now, even though we're not going to use him until, you know, so many episodes later. Whereas, like, I wonder if Ellen was only ever just a photo, you know, until later some, you know, like where she... Maybe originally it was just assumed that she died in, you know, the genocide of the Cylons and everything. And then you find that you want to introduce her as a character. Okay, now we can't just have a photo of a woman. We need to go cast an actress. And, you know, and you're not going to put the same person in just because they're in the photo. Like you want to make sure it's the person who's right for the role and everything. So, um. That just Which, that just makes me wonder, like, to what extent did they know in the miniseries? They probably didn't know that they would ever bring in Ellen as a, you know, as a player in the show, I guess. Right. Interesting. So, All right. where did you want to start? So, I want to start with the whole Cylon testing. Mm-hmm. Um... Because, first of all, you know, all right, well, all right, there's a number of different things that we could talk mm-hmm. about. Um, but let's start right at the beginning, because we get the, we get Adama and Rosalind talking about it. Um, pretty much right at the beginning. Like, you get, you get this sort of ominous, you know, Rosalind sort of, like, standing up in the upper mm-hmm. deck, like, looking down. Um, and right at this is coming right after like the previously on Battlestar Galactica when we are reminded that the last thing Leobin said to her was Adama's a Cylon, you know. Um, so you get her sort of looking down ominously, and then you know, like their little like sort of half smiles at each other, and then um, talking about you know the fact that now there's this Cylon test, and so who should we test first? <laughs> You know, and there's like this really uncomfortable like back and forth uh, where basically, you know, Adama definitely puts it more gently, but you get the feeling that he's suggesting basically the the opposite of what she is, which is he's suggesting that Rosin should be the first one right. tested, perhaps. And she, of course, comes right out and says, how about you go first? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but he, he says it a little more delicately, like, oh, maybe we should test people in high positions, you know, which if, you know, the military technically reports to the president would be her, right? Like, she's in the highest position, mm-hmm. really. Um, sure. And so I guess, you know, one question, not question really, but one thought is just, like, to what extent... Like, we don't, you know, he plays it closer to the best, but to what extent is maybe he having 
the same doubts that she's mm. having insofar as like on the one hand at the end of last episode when you get leo bin whispering in her ear that you know uh adama's a cylon there's a moment where you almost think like maybe she can ignore that or you know push it out of her mind because like she knows like she even says like you know he'll he's like poisoning us he's like Mm -hmm. you know using us against each other kind of thing like like she knows that you can't trust anything he says Mm -hmm. but that seed still gets planted Mm -hmm. like she's at the beginning of this episode you know she's clearly still uh you know thinking about what he said and so you know i you know whether whether that's I mean, that certainly seems to be her motivation here is that he said that to her. But there's also just sort of the practical thing of like, yeah, starting at the top does kind of make sense. Yeah. So you can see from Adama's standpoint, like he easily could have come up with that on his own. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, as a strategic thing, like, yeah, let's start with the top, give people confidence, at least people who would believe them anyway, because like. Like there, all right. So one thing I want to talk about too later is like, how do we even trust Baltar? Which we already know with that we can't, right. right? So, um, but yeah, there's that there's that idea of let's at least start you know clear the people at the top, and then you know everyone else will like trust them, and then you know you can see like the test is good. Right. Um, but the people at the top don't even trust each other, right. so like. Like, there's just that problem between the two of them of, at some point, there's, you have to have a starting point, right? Like, you have to have some sort of axiomatic, like, this is where we begin, and you can't prove anything before this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, if they don't trust each other sort of implicitly, then the question becomes, like, are they even really going to trust each other after this kind of test and thing? Sure. And the the funny sort of thing is the way the episode ends, like, neither of them have still been tested. Like, like by the end of the episode, neither of them have still been tested, but kind of the experience that they go through, it seems like they pretty much trust each other by the end. Right. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah. So... I mean, you can't say for sure, but... I'm going to... What? I'm going to hazard a guess and I could be wrong about this, but I feel like my memory and my impression is that after this point, while the Cylon test is definitely still a thing. And while I assume it's continuing to be worked on, like all of these samples are being tested in the background. I don't think we hear much about it anymore. And it kind of makes me wonder if like, kind of the idea of that is like it's more important to believe that we have a test than to really want to use it (laughs) like like there's that thing of boomer saying and i'm not saying like okay we have a test and we're never like i'm sure we don't need to be told every week that we're continuing to test people that's sort of just implied i think but it the focus i think goes way off of the test once we have it um and it kind of reminds me of like Boomer saying like, you know, for a second I was worried what you were going to say. Like, I think, yeah, like 
how do they trust each other? How do they trust them, themselves? You know, and part of the, you know, uh, you know, I think they agree. Yes, we should start from sensitive positions, you know, lead by example and start from the top down. But also part of it is like, nobody would really want to take this test. So like, you know, I know I have to take it, but you go first. So it, it serves my suspicion of you while also delaying the inevitable for me too. Um, you know, and I think there's, you know, there's just a, a distinct cooling off of the, you know, desire to, you know, put everything onto the Cylon test after this point. Um, sure. Which is yeah, just well, and, and, you know, part of that's because with 50, whatever thousand people or, or 40, whatever thousand people at this point, um, like it, it, one, it becomes rote, right? Like there's, there's just no, yeah. it, you know, it's just routine. It just, okay. Another person cleared, another person cleared, like, like the news, it, it's like, it's like reporting on the news, yeah. right? Nobody reports on like the everyday stuff yeah. that happens all the time that isn't, you know, exciting or new or different, yeah. you know? that's not news news is almost by definition you know something that is uh unique or doesn't happen every mm -hmm. day um so you know in this case the the news is when someone tests positive for being a Cylon mm -hmm. and when that doesn't happen at first like or after a little while you know it's just kind of like okay well like you said the the tests are probably running in the background there but it's not like anyone really cares, you know, other than Baltar, who's sort of still running the test, mm -hmm. but, you know, again, he's like, calculates it out, right? I'm going to be doing this for the next, what, 60 years or whatever. Right, so right. why, why should he even like rush right. to bother? Like in the next 60 years, half or more of the people on these ships are going to be dead anyway. Right. So what's the point of even testing them? Right. And, which, which uh, you know, brings up all sort of like practical questions in my mind. It's like, so who do you test first? Do you test like the old people first because they're going to die first? Or do you not even bother with them because they're going to be the ones to die first and you won't have to worry about them soon enough? Right. Like you'll, you'll never have to get to their test because they'll just be right. dead. Right. Um, you know, which is, it, you know, prioritizing that isn't my job and I'm glad it's not, you know, for those reasons. No, um, and that brings up all sorts of questions about like, you know, ethical things of who do you target for screenings and all that sort of thing of like, are people going to be discriminated against based on whatever factors, you know, of who's likeliest to be a Cylon, you know, you sure. get all sorts of implications yeah. of, which, of, you know, categories in there and everything. Yeah. Which any criteria they would use would be ridiculous anyway, because that's the whole point of the test is if they had other criteria to use, they would be using right. it. Right. Like, right. but they don't. So there's, you know, anything that they come up with really is ridiculous. So do you not test someone cause they appear to be old or seem old or have like a birth certificate from a long time ago? Well, but how do you know they weren't just made to look that right. way, you know, or right. yeah, you know, forged a birth certificate or whatever. Um, so there's, there's all those sort like you said, like there's all those different questions of like screening and stuff that comes into play or could come into play, but don't seem to ever really, at least 
not in that way. Um, yeah. That I can remember. At, at least, least not that we see, I don't think. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think you're right. Like, that's all to just say, like, that there is, you have to just have a certain level of trust at some point, mm -hmm. you know, because again, if it takes 60 years to do all these tests, what, you know, are you going to wait 60 years to see if you were right? Like mm -hmm. that last person who does the test could be the silent right. one, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, no. And it, it, you know, the thing of testing the people at the top too, it reminds me of Adama saying, um, you know, if, if, if the chief wanted to take down the, the BSG, he could like, you know, like, yeah, that's why you start with those important people, but that's like all the characters that we know are the ones in the really sensitive positions, you know? Um, well, and, and from Adama's perspective, like we don't ever hear this. This is just me sort of guessing, but like he's, he's the one who's been in place in on the Battlestar Galactica. He's fought Cylons before. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he was in, uh, like he, like if there's, if there's anyone with like a recorded history, he's the one mm -hmm. like, more so than probably anyone else who's like still alive at this point in from the colonies. Like he's been in the military the whole time. Like you, you know, his active posts, like everything that gets done on the bridge of the battle star gets recorded. And like, <laughs> so like all of his actions are probably the best documented, like short of the actual blood tests to mm -hmm. prove that you're not a Cylon. He's probably the closest one to being able to be trusted just based on merit alone right. um whereas like Rosalind is suspect because okay yeah we hear that she was a teacher and this and that but like you know she's someone who wasn't really in the public eye before sort of becoming this low-level cabinet member mm -hmm. and then suddenly in one day gets thrust into the most important position in the entire colonies right. like no one really knows who she is. Like Baltar supposedly met her before, but doesn't remember mm -hmm. her. And we sort of blame him because of who he is, but you know, maybe she never actually did meet him. Maybe she just sort of is saying right. that and hoping that he'll, you know, not really remember or whatever. Right. Um, so like if there's anyone who has to like, who could be hiding sort of a background, it's her because before she was in that sort of low level cabinet position, she was, she didn't really have a background, at least not a public one, not a verifiable mm -hmm. one, you know, from that perspective. So, you know, from Adama's perspective, that could easily be the sort of thing that like a Cylon would take advantage of, mm -hmm. right. And sort of have, have an infiltration in the, the cabinet itself to put her in that top position. And I'm playing devil's advocate here. Like we know that's not the case with Roslyn. Right. Um, but you can see why that sort of thinking might occur to, to Adama. Yeah. Um, and why he might want to have her tested and might to him seem more reasonable that she go first than he does. Mm. Um, but he acquiesces, mm -hmm. Like he says, okay, you know, test me first, which, you know, he knows it's gonna come out or does he because like that's the other thing that we don't really get much of here is with like boomer we see actions where it seems like she's doing things that she doesn't 
appear to remember mm -hmm. like it's part of her programming or part of her subconscious whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it where you know she's she's doing things that she doesn't seem to remember she doesn't seem to know that she's a cylon mm -hmm. even though we do you know we know that she is um you know yeah adama just because he knows that he's not a cylon doesn't mean he's not a Cylon. Right. I mean, like, Boomer, Boomer you know, knows she's not a Cylon, too. She's even had a test to prove it, <laughs> you right, know, well, which yes. we'll get to later. We sh we'll, we'll talk, talk about, that, about that. But, like, yeah. yeah, like, the concept of the sleeper agent in the literal sense of not just being undercover, but being asleep, I don't think has yeah. seems to have occurred to them yet, right? I don't think any of them have said maybe there are Cylons who don't even know they're Cylons. Um, right. I think maybe number six has said that like to Baltar, but like, I don't hear that from like right now, the threat seems to be undercover terrorists. Like these are people intentionally sabotaging our, right. our ships and attacking yeah. us and right. all these things. It, I don't think it's yet on their radar that it could be me and I might not even know it, you know? So Right. Which, if they already don't trust themselves, you know, has to only, would only increase that yeah. sense of not knowing, but, you know. But but they're so paranoid with each other that they don't, right. that's not on the right. radar yet. So, right. um, yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, you know, lots of, lots of fun and distrust uh, <laughs> in this episode. Um yeah, so let's talk about the length of time <laughs> because I feel like that all you know we'll go into like other stuff too. But um, Boomer's test takes what all of like thirty seconds, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe maybe a full minute, yeah. like you know, because Baltar does sort of like poke at the screen a lot, you know, like in that particular episode. Now, maybe he. Now we I guess have, he did like, do that. I was going to say maybe he totally faked the test the first time, but we know that he did it and then changed the we, results. We so. see the results, yeah. right? So, yeah. okay. And then we're told here that like, it takes 11 hours to verify the results. Right. Now, I have a couple thoughts and none of them fully satisfy me, but I'm at least willing to say one of these things could be maybe a possible uh, explanation for. Sure. Life. One is that, we, it, we, we're told it takes 11 hours to verify the results. Not to get the results, but to verify mm. them. So it's like, so maybe, you know, it's like a scientific study where it's like, you can get preliminary results, but then, you know, you do like the full testing to like rule out other possibilities. Mm. And, you know, that takes a longer amount of time. Um, maybe, maybe it took longer and, based on the way the episode was cut, maybe there was just a longer period of time in Boomer's test than it appears. Right, like she goes away and then comes like, back for her test results 11 hours yeah, later. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, like maybe, yeah, maybe there's there's a gap there right. that we just don't know about. Um, you know, uh, maybe maybe there's something where there's a difference between like a positive result and a negative result. Maybe positive results are really quick, Mm -hmm. but you know maybe there's a lot of like little tests that need to be done to like have a negative result just because like you can't prove a negative so maybe there's more things 
that need to be like considered before you can say definitively this person is not a sign. Right. I don't know. So like, you know, there's again none of those answers like sort of fully satisfy me, sure. but maybe one or a combination of some of those things could be, uh, you know, could be the reason why there's such a discrepancy here. Sure. Um, sure. No, I basically think you can, though. You can, write your way out of it but they yeah. don't really give us that in the show no itself. they they don't they don't give that explanation or anything but the real reason is that we need we need the test to take long enough that it becomes a pain in the ass to restart <laughs> yeah. it yeah like that's the writer reason right. whatever the faux scientific mm -hmm. reason might be that we can guess at yeah um yeah, and, and, because, and long enough that Baltar is staring at the rest of his life in right. the face as he looks at this sea of blood tests that this is, if he already didn't want to do this test, now he's looking at, you know, a lifetime's worth of tedium, you know, in, in testing these things, you know, and he factors in a few hours for sleep. So, <laughs> you know, buys right. himself an extra year, but yeah. No, and I think you're right. That is probably the real, you know, the real explanation. Um, but, um, yeah, it's interesting with the with the starts and stops because you said, you mentioned how uh, the episode starts very ominously with, you know, Rosalind sort of staring at Adama and everything and um, and all of the paranoia that goes back and forth. But... It's funny to me how for such an ominous beginning, um, the episode just by the end sort of devolves into this like farcical, like comedic thing of like everyone, it, it, like it's so silly, like everybody calling Baltar and telling him stop the test, start the test. They're all suspecting each sure. other, accusing each other, sure. and they're they're all guilty, just not of the things that they're being accused of, and it's right. it's misunderstandings. It's like a sitcom, like by the end of it. So, um, just cracks me up how, you know, again, I feel like BSG has the reputation for like grim dark, and like, well, but this episode, like, what starts as the most grim dark premise, which is like our leaders are suspecting each other of being Cylons by yeah. the end is like completely unraveled into just ridiculousness and the threat well, isn't removed it's just it becomes it becomes farcical and hilarious so right well and and not only that but like potentially is worse because don't we even get like adama saying like like it's worse if ellen isn't a cylon and hey lo and behold what do we learn right. ellen's not a cylon right. like <laughs> you, you know right. like there's there's that idea of like yeah, in one sense, like, it is more dire and, like you say, grimdark and, and whatever at the end. But but it has taken on sort of this, like, ridiculous, almost sort of slapstick. I mean, yeah. you know, when you have an episode where you have Starbuck walking in on, uh, is, is it masturbation, really? Or, like, what's going on? Like, we don't really know what... Uh, yeah. Baltar is doing his, or his exercises. in that moment. He's doing his exercises. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're um, right. And it does start off with like that, like just the visual slapstick of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, and you're... The slapstick, the right Well, anyway. uh, uh, <laughs> wow. Um, no, I completely lost my train we, of thought. 
we, we we might need to uh you know rate this episode a little differently than others. Yeah. but anyway <laughs> um yeah, for itunes um yeah anyway Anywho. No, and that's funny that, I mean, maybe to transition to talking about Ellen, that's funny that you say that it's more dangerous if she's not a Cylon, because it's like, yeah, if you find someone as a Cylon, they have justification to, like, lock them yeah. up, or, like, get rid yeah. of them, or do whatever, or, yeah. but what do you do with people who are human, but, like, are dangerous, and, like, disruptive, and all these things, like, you know, she's free to keep doing what she's doing and Ty is free to keep being the kind of drunk sloppy XO he's allowed to be and those are now continuing to be people in what we said were high levels of sensitivity in very important positions you know um not necessarily behaving all that well so (laughs) um like it's still funny but definitely like a very serious situation yeah so yeah maybe we should talk about those those crazy ties you know they're they're a couple of characters they are um oh well and we didn't even talk about like in all of that adama's sort of mysterious phone calls and you know sure you know leaving unexpectedly and all of that kind of stuff which sort of keeps on the paranoia and whatnot but all of that we learn is to collect to verify and collect ellen ty Mm -hmm. from uh from one of the ships in the fleet where she has presumably been um unconscious and not uh not responding um Mm -hmm you know not knowing who she was or whatever and and recuperating from some kind of accident we don't really know what um and the suspicion around there especially with um you know roslyn sort of pointing out or it's a roslyn or dama who like talks about like no one really knew like no one has a record of like anyone taking care of her uh adama does i think so um, i guess he talked to the people on her ship and, and is coming across right. some holes in the stories and everything. Right. Um, yeah. So, which again, in an episode of paranoia, like sort of elicits his own paranoia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and of course the, you know, the fact that Adama leaves and goes to get Ellen leads to uh, Ty being paranoid right and and there's like you know why is he doing that and then you know he goes and talks with Rosalind, and Rosalind like accuses of dama perhaps of being a cylon and at first ty sort of defends him but then like you can tell like things are sort of working in his brain Mm -hmm. um especially after he starts drinking again Mm -hmm. um yeah and the way in which ellen is explicitly like uh connected with the drinking that you know she even yeah drinks it and like puts it in his own mouth like almost like spits it into his mouth like you know not exactly the most subtle but like you know the two things are you know if not equal at least connected that you know it's for him this is all about indulgence in you know 
in these things which are, you know, seductive and pleasurable, but lead him to, you know, behave in like dangerous and self-destructive ways and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and especially when he had just dumped out the last of his own stash earlier that day or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how the time cuts go, but um, the idea being that even though he maybe only poured out like one drink's worth, like he didn't drink it, right? Like he made, he, it, it wasn't just like, damn, I ran out and can't get more. It's that he actively chose to stop mm-hmm. drinking. So to have her then sort of forcibly cause him to start again, you know, that even makes it a bit worse. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then you also have Ellen being just sort of all around uncouth, right? <laughs> um, uh, the flirting, I guess we could call it, with Lee. Sure. Um, yeah. The uh, faux pas of bringing up Zach. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, again, is it like, oh, she just hasn't been around for a few years? Or, you know, did she know and, and was she instigating? And that's that's sort of, I think, the question of Ellen all along, mm. right? Like, how much is she being deliberate or how much is this just sort of she's being clueless? Mm. And you get the sense that there's, you know, it it seems to be some mixture of that. You just don't know. Is it 50-50? Is it 60-40? And and in which way? Right. <laughs> you right. know, if it's the off-balance ones. So right. um, Yeah, her her disconnect with um the whole tone of everything. Like, because you would think, like, even if she doesn't know that Zach died several years ago, you would think she would guess that maybe he died in like the Cylon genocide. Like the fact that like he's not there at dinner and serving on the ship like probably he's dead because everybody's dead like millions of billions of people and all that um but like that's just like common sense even if she didn't know you know the personal history of what happened but yeah like it doesn't she blows right past that like Oh, like, where's, oh, Zach must have grown into such a fine young man, like, as if he's just back on Caprica, like, home. Like, she's totally, either intentionally or not, disconnected from, you know, the kind of suffering of the human human race and everything, it seems. Um, yeah. No, and she's definitely, well, and again, for one thing, like, we we're told that she you know was unconscious so like something happened before like the attack apparently and then she was put onto this uh mm-hmm. you know whatever the vessel is that she i forget the name of the ship that she was on um but like yeah like she hasn't gone through the trauma mm-hmm. and maybe you kind of can wonder whether she would go through it anyway <laughs> given who she is but but you definitely get that sense of like for her it you know it's all about me and it's and there's and it's all in the moment like there's no Mm. 
reflection forward or you know backward um and there's no reflection outward either really like it's it's all about her and the only attention that she gives to others is like sort of how how she can sort of get them to react to her and give her attention mm. right it's like that childish thing of you know just wanting attention no matter what kind of attention it is mm -hmm. um so yeah yeah um yeah and although i do want to kind of i don't think this changes that but i do want to point out there are a couple of moments where you know and maybe this goes towards some of her sort of insensitivity being kind of intentional is like she does get a few moments of like insight into you know as much as she's oblivious about the things that like you know manners and all that kind of thing um you know every so often she has these little insights like um you know what's the one i was just thinking of um oh when she asks adama about where's earth and when do we get there and like which hasn't been brought up really since the mini series like okay we're going to earth mm. and it's just assumed that you know adama says he'll take us there and he knows the way and all this um you know she immediately that's her first question is where's earth and when do we get there and you know he says it's classified and uh -huh, that word again and everything but like her celebrating in the hallway and like making fun of adama that like you know her thing of like bill adama doesn't know where earth is you know like she catches right onto that and i don't know that anybody else has except for Rosalind. you know like right does does Ty know that? Does Starbuck? How about Lee? Like, I don't think any of them have said, hey, Adama, it kind of seems like you don't know where Earth is. Like, they all just trust him when he says, I've got it under control. They say, you know, okay, and that makes sense. Whereas she's like, maybe because she's that kind of transgressive character, she's not going to just take that on faith. Like, she seems like pretty convinced that he that's a lie he has no idea um which is we know that that's right so there's some some level of you know uh, i don't know intuition there which is interesting um or at least an ability sure. to to read something in adama and and you know kind of the same thing too of like you know when when they're talking about anyone can be a Cylon and there's that scary long pause where they're all sort of staring at each other. And then she like scares them, you know, her like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And, which is like hilarious. Um, sure. Uh, like again, like that, like, I think she understands the gravity of that. She just doesn't respect it. You know, like, like there's a sense there of like, this is a very serious yeah. thing, but let me undercut it. And, and, you know, disrespect the gravity of the moment, um, and make fun of how seriously you're all taking this. Um, so, you know, maybe that kind of shows like, she's not totally oblivious to the seriousness of the situation. She just chooses not to abide by those like social rules or something. Um, she's just gonna have fun and do what she wants like you said, in the moment when she wants it. Sure. 
which is, you know, in a show that's populated by like military characters that respect protocol and authority and all these things, she's like a totally different kind of, you know, you know, force of nature, I think, in the mix. So, force of nature. <laughs> um, you know, but as we sort of talked about earlier, despite her sort of divisiveness and, and again, like, I don't, I mean, we don't know, is it intentional or not? We just know that it is potentially <laughs> divisive um, and certainly seems to divide some of the characters here, but not. Ty and Adama ultimately they they are able to kind of retain their uh, yeah friendship and and working relationship so two things real quick that that just uh occurred to me like one like just the way that uh it becomes like a weird kind of love triangle between like Adama and Ty and like the, you know that we have again with that farcical thing we have like you know, two characters, like, who is Ty going to choose? Like, you have this sense of, like, his loyalties are split between, you know, mm. these two lives, these two people that he cares about. And there's a kind of a truce at the end, but maybe a sense of can these things exist, you know, in cooperation, or will he have to sort of choose one over the other? Um, and then also the way you're talking about her as like this divisive figure who turns the characters on each other, that makes her sound a lot like Leobin to me. Like, you know, like sure. talking about Leobin, like he tells you have truths that make you question each other and sows paranoia and distrust and all these, you know, and that's kind of what we get in this episode. Like now I know Leobin is responsible for some of that because of his whole like, Adama's a Cylon thing, but you also get Ellen coming in and suddenly like characters are, you know, you know, forced to choose sides and aren't, don't trust each other and, you know, have to sort of find a way to come together in the end. So. Yeah. Just worth pointing out. Well, we'll keep an eye out for other divisiveness that uh, Ellen may or may not show. Um, all right. So last few minutes, we should talk about um, some of the other. Oh, you know what? Few characters. I'm sorry. Before we do that really quick, I, we do have to talk about the question of the, the truth of Baltar's uh, Cylon test at the end. Cause we've kind oh, of talked around yeah. it a bit, but yeah right um it's yeah we don't we don't we know. don't know and very definitely told you know six says you know oh everybody passes these days and what does it really say and he says i'll never tell so yeah pretty definitely not confirmed from right. Baltar. and like unlike boomer like the audience doesn't see Right. So we don't right. know for sure one way or the mm -hmm. other. Um, and of course, like even by asking the question, what did it really mm -hmm. say? 
you're all like you're almost implying that it's not what he mm-hmm. said right like like that like like why would you even question that and why would he answer i'll never tell like it's it's one of those it's one of those sort of like begging the question moments of you're almost answering it or implying the answer simply by asking that question mm-hmm. and by not simply saying well it was green of course mm-hmm. <laughs> like because right. if it was green it wouldn't be a problem to admit that it really was green. right sure yeah and and again while the tests presumably continue to be run quietly in the background calls into suspect all the rest of them you know so right. you know um which is i think a fairly neat way of solving the problem of like okay we have a cylon test in the fleet that works presumably we know at least some of our other characters maybe cylons at some point why doesn't why don't they all get exposed you know as baltar does yeah. his tests and i think the answer is you know baltar again prioritizing his own you know needs above that of the fleet he's you know he's learned from people suggesting that maybe he would be a target for assassination that it's better if he just you know keeps any information to himself and quietly passes everybody and so maybe baltar knows these things but uh he's not going to share that with the audience and the characters and everything sure sure yeah. No, good. I, I'm glad you brought that up before we moved on. Um, we may or may not ever know what Baltar's motives are. Sure. Like, I'm not even sure Baltar knows what his motives sure. are. Sure. Kind um, of like Ellen, too. Like, there's another parallel of, like, the, sure. the, the, the troublemaker who does it for its own sake, you know? Like, um... You know, another one who's not going to just play by the rules, you know, and do what he wants. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, So at least wanted to mention Billy and Dee um, and and Billy being a little sly dog. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And getting nervous when he's called out. (laughs) Uh, Nervous and and denying. Mm hmm. Uh, of of what he's doing. Yeah, not, Billy, are you pumping me for information? Yeah, not a great start uh, to the first date. <laughs> like, yeah. spying I'll, for Rosalind, like, you know. Right. Although Dee does sort of take it humorously. Like, because she figures it out. Yeah. And other than the fact that, like, you know, Billy clearly tells Rosalind what's going on and she sort of takes the information, you know, to like mm-hmm. 11. Um, you know, it's not that big of a thing, sure. really. Like, like it's just they're talking and whatnot. But but it is it is funny to see, like, Billy being that sort of conniving one. Because, like, clearly he is pumping her for information. Mm-hmm. Like, there is, you know... Yeah intentionality behind his questions it's not like they're just having a conversation and Dee mentions something and billy then happens to mention it to Rosalind. he's clearly looking for information from you know the communications officer of the cic mm-hmm. like or whatever Dee's official title is something like that yeah right? so 
Um, yeah, little little slyness going on. Yeah, but also like he's not very good at it. Like you know, like it doesn't come sure. natural. That's a, that's a Rosalind thing. Is go go do a little snooping and pump her for information while you're on your date. You know, whereas for him, obviously he gets caught like twenty seconds yeah. into it. Like it's it's no, he's it's obvious. You know, and uh, yeah, no, and uh, yeah, like. Dee doesn't, you know, get angry, really, but I take her response as a little chilly. Like, you know, like, she's she takes it a little bit in stride, but there's also a firmness, I think, of, like, well, you know, all right, date's over. <laughs> That's the last we're gonna... Don't try that again, you know, because maybe I will get angry next time. Um, you know. Like, yeah. she doesn't take it more than for more than what it is but also like i think she makes it kind of clear that that's you know like she says that's the last answer he'll get to that line of questioning so best not go there again fair enough um and funny too to see like where do people go for dates in the fleet you know like they all all the couples cram into sure. like one room and they like look at the stars and like it's like this is this is the hot destination it's kind of funny right um yeah no it definitely like you know because you know what do you, you you go out you know to a park and look at the stars or something and right or you know whatever on like a, a normal date but of course they're not on a planet or anything so right. where do you go to look at the stars well anywhere right. <laughs> like anywhere that has an observation deck you know and that there's like yeah. no privacy it's like it's you and like the 50 sure. other couples who like you know have signed up so it's just you know interesting idea um definitely okay uh and then just yeah uh should mention hilo and sharon um you know more running around more hiding mm -hmm. Um, and, and seems that they actually are able to lose, uh, lose their tails mm -hmm. of Six and Doral, um, which Six is really pissed off mm -hmm. about. <laughs> well, yeah. And um, like the idea that Sharon is off plan, like, because in the last one, Doral said, okay, go to this house. We have food set up. You have this, like we have your next stop and whatever. And but they they're not doing that. So Sharon has had a break from, you know, what her other silence have told her to do. Um, sure. So, yeah, which is the seems to be the thing that has six sort of um, pissed off. But in, I like that little exchange of like them wondering what it would be like to feel strong emotions, you know, and it's like Doral, who's the one who's saying like, oh, I wonder what it would be like to feel that way is like totally like he's curious, but he's totally sort of his usual like robotic deadpan self, you know, mm. whereas Six is over there having those intense emotions, you know, <laughs> like you can see it right. on her face that she's, you know, whatever it is that she's thinking about, she's already feeling things, you know, and has to sort of hide her face to not show it. Um, sure. Which is an interesting distinction between the two of them. Um, 
Yeah. Like maybe Doral wonders what it would be like to feel things because he doesn't. Whereas it seems like Six does um, to right. me. Yeah. No, I definitely, definitely get that same sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's perfect right. timing, so. All right, well, let's not spoil All right. <laughs> All right, switching over to bargaining part two, uh, second half of the season premiere. So I think we were talking before we started that the plot is fairly minimal in this. Like there's punching and fighting of demons and running from demons and stuff, but like mostly I feel like it's just about establishing where the characters are for the beginning of the season. Um, so I kind of wanted to just go through uh, character by character. So we might as well start with Buffy, um, who is officially back from the dead in this episode. Um, yeah. And comes back, we talked about this last time, but comes back in her coffin under the earth, you know, in like, you know, everybody's nightmare scenario of being buried alive um, mm -hmm. and has to, you know, claw and, you know, dig her own way out. Um, sure. Which is definitely not ideal. You kind of later when they talk about like, how guilty they feel for leaving her there. It's like, you kind of want to say like, yeah, you probably should have thought of that. Like maybe, I don't know, exhuming the coffin before doing the ritual might've been a good idea. Um, yeah. I mean, we don't, I don't know if they thought like she would just, are. maybe they thought she would just like appear in front of them and wouldn't like get resurrected, like in her own, like body or something i'm not sure yeah well that's what i mean like i don't i don't know if we really know what the details behind the ritual are right like i mean we see stuff but like does she have to be interred still or you know are there other considerations like would would disturbing her grave have messed up the ritual in some mm. way we don't we don't know right or did breaking the urn mean that it didn't go quite the way it should have? You know, like if Willow yeah. had been able to finish the, the spell, you know, maybe this was a side effect of getting interrupted or something. Um, but in any case, she comes back in like the most horrific manner possible, you know. Right, um, right. You know, this is definitely not a kind of you know, rebirth into a new life, but, you know, a kind of zombie resurrection into where she died. Um, and that's kind of what I want to talk about with Buffy is like the, the emphasis of like on that horror of her experience that mm. like, this is not a happy res resurrection for the character at all. Mm. Um, and like, that's true at every point throughout the episode like everything happens in like the worst possible way you know as if it's not traumatic enough it's like 
it just all sort of goes wrong and is sort of designed to like traumatize her further. Um, and I, I yeah. wanted to point out too, like the similarity between her being kind of feral in a way with the way Angel came back when, you know, when he comes back, uh, you know, from death in Buffy, when, mm. when, uh, after she has to kill him. And then when he comes back the next season, there was like a period of several episodes where he like, didn't really know who he was, couldn't speak, you know, seemed to be kind of wild and, you know, all these things from wherever he'd been. And it kind of seems similar with Buffy, like maybe not quite so bad, but, um, you know, the two just sort of remind, it reminded me of that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And right. And so there's also the question of subjectively how much time has passed for right. her. Right. Cause we know that other dimensions or other places, like we don't really know where she is, yeah. but like, you know, there, like her body is still here, but like we don't know what happened to like her soul consciousness, whatever, mm -hmm. like in the interim, like, cause that's the whole, that's the whole point. Right. That's why like Willow argues in the last part of the episode of why it should work. Right. This isn't a natural death. It's a magical mm. death. So, so there's something that happened. Um, and we don't know, but we don't know what in the meantime. So, like, with Angel, like, we know he went to, like, a hell dimension. We've seen, like, other hell dimensions that have, uh, where time has run differently, right? Like, the the episode Anne, where, you know, she's in L.A. and there's, they, like, there's this, like, hell dimension and, and you know, people are gone for like a day and come back like a hundred years mm -hmm. old or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so we don't know like subjectively, like how long she's actually been away or whatever. Um, and we don't know where she was, mm -hmm. like where her consciousness was or what it might have been doing or not doing. Like maybe it wasn't doing anything. Maybe she just sort of woke up. Maybe it's instantaneous. Mm -hmm. Maybe she jumped, you know, at the end of last season and woke up in a coffin at the beginning of the season and there was no time for her. Um, so we don't really know. Um, but yeah, like, the, it, it's interesting to me that, like, you go through the episode of, like, her being sort of catatonic, not catatonic, but, like, not speaking mm -hmm. and not really knowing and sort of seeming afraid at some points and then fighting back at others and... Um, sort of just taking a lot of things in, but not really saying or doing a whole lot unless she's sort of forced into mm -hmm. it. And then being drawn to, you know, the big structure, of course, that um, was built by the crazy people, as Dawn reminds right, us, right. Um, you know, at the end of the last season. And, you know, that being the thing that she sort of identifies mm. with, um, even though it's clearly a very different situation, like there's not all the, you know, portal opening and, you know, stuff going on that there was at that point. Um, but I, you know, I think the revelation there at the end of, 
of sort of what her thought process is. Um, and there's, so there's two things. One, her, her comment, which is the first time she speaks, I think, right. Of when she said, when she asks, is this mm -hmm. hell? Um, or maybe it's not the, like, I can't remember. Is that before or after she's like whispering, like sort of mouthing along with like the, the words from before, but um, anyway, yeah, like when she, she might asks, be kind of like remembering and mouthing along with that, but that's like the first real line that she has. Yeah. Right. Is that question. Right. Um, that question of is, is this hell? And you kind of realize like going back, like, holy crap. Like, yeah. What has she seen? She's seen, you know, demons riding around, destroying things. She's seen like debris and fire in the streets. And she's seen like herself getting, drawn and quartered uh, you know by motorcycle demons mm -hmm. and you know getting attacked and her friends sort of out and about in like warfare zone kind of thing you know yeah. and so like just looking back on like all of her well and not to mention the waking up in a coffin and having to you know punch and dig your mm -hmm. way out like yeah this could very easily seem like it's hell or you know a hell dimension or whatever um and realizing that that's sort of what she's wondering and and also realizing that now granted like at the beginning of the last episode okay it starts off with fighting vampires but there doesn't seem to be anything like meaningfully changed at the beginning of you know this whole two-part episode right that's mm -hmm. you know dawn's still going to school and they're having like parent teacher day and you know, Xander's working and, you know, Anya's running the shop and Giles is there. Like, it's all very, like, if you think about the contrast of the beginning of the, you know, first part of the episode mm -hmm. and where we end up, like, <laughs> there, there's a major, like, discatastrophe going on, you know, throughout uh, this. And, 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 you know, it's really quite dystopian by the mm -hmm. end. Um, so, yeah, just that, like, I feel like, like it's gradual for us and for the characters, or at least maybe gradual isn't quite the right word because the demons do sort of just arrive in town, but it's like, you can see the steps happening. Whereas for Buffy, she just like wakes up in the middle of it and mm -hmm. sees all of this. So, um, you know, that's interesting, but, but also the other thing, um, is just that, that that's where she's drawn to, right. Mm -hmm. Is like, like it, she's not drawn to the magic shop. She's not drawn home. She's not drawn, you know, anywhere else. It's, it's to where she sacrificed her life for her sister. And the fact that she, you know, like she says it, that it was also clear, like this was the moment, like this was what she knew she had to do. Mm -hmm. Right. In which I think she says almost exactly that in, in the end of last season, right? The last episode is she says, like, it makes sense. Like I, you know, death is my gift. This puzzle that I've been dealing with, it, it all makes sense to me now. I know what I have to do yeah. and I know, you know, where I need to go and all of that. So, you know, just the fact that like, just like the physical sort of manifestation of everything around her has become hellish. Like there's also that mental aspect of like, I don't know what's going on and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. That is 
isn't really stated, but is implied by that, you know, before I knew exactly what to do. Right. And now I don't. Right. And, and I think that's, you know, both of those sort of revelation. I mean, they're kind of maybe even different sides of the same coin in a way, but just that, you know, those revelations are kind of the big, you know, things that, that you realize that she's been dealing with all along in this episode, but don't really grasp until sort of that end conversation with Dawn. Oh, excuse me. I was yawning. Um, <laughs> just oh, at the, at the cl at, clearly I was very intrigued at the moment my, when I was getting ready there. to talk. Um, yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the thing of her seeing the Buffy bot get sort of torn apart because like, definitely that was in my mind when I was saying like, you know, this episode is like, you know, just beat after beat of torture for Buffy, you know, like, yeah, you know, not only waking up in, you know, a dystopia, like you said, and waking up in a coffin and having to fight your way out. But, you know, she's been through one death and then she sees what appears to be herself die all over again. Like, this must just seem like, you know, the seventh circle of hell or something like here's like eternal. You're going to watch yourself like die over and over again in different variations and everything. Um, and yeah, it was definitely very struck by the return to the tower and the kind of, not kind of, the very explicitly sort of suicidal overtones of that, of, you know, it was clear, you know, in that moment of sacrifice, you know, she knew what she wanted to do and what she should do. And it was, you know, a sad choice, but it was to her a clear choice, which has a sort of positive overtone to it of, I want to go back to that place of when it made sense. And I had a clear purpose of what I wanted and what I could do to help. And so being now in this world where she has no idea what's going on, nothing makes sense. Everything's awful and falling apart. And her temptation to go back to that you know like mm. if i like she's flirting with the edge of that precipice you know and you know if i if i go through with this maybe it'll be clear again you know or maybe it'll just put me out of my misery since this is hell you know uh, if i do this it'll be over um and she won't have to deal with it anymore um yeah, and the question about is this hell sort of implying what she may or may not have experienced in the interim? Because we sort of had Willow speculating about, well, she didn't die a natural death. She was killed by this mystical energy. And so therefore, her soul can't just be, you know, wherever it is that souls naturally go when they die. But it must be suffering torment in this sort of hell dimension and it's our duty to bring her back but the fact that she's asking is this hell to me implies that I don't know maybe that wasn't her experience you know whether mm. she was somewhere else or like you said it was just instantaneous and she just sort of immediately woke up um it doesn't seem like she you know 
associate something else with hell. It's like earth, sure. earth is Sunnydale is the closest, you know, the right. world she well, left, the world is she knows it, you know, because and yeah, this isn't, isn't that what Angel basically found too, right? Sure. <laughs> in Wolf, the, the elevator in Wolfram right. and Hart. <laughs> right. This is hell. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's, we carry it with us. And yeah, like, yes, Sunnydale has sort of gone to pot and demons are taking over and looting and burning and all that. But like, it's not so different than when she was alive. Like, it's, it's not like the whole world is like, a barren wasteland it's like no it's recognizable like i understand that she's waking up and being put through a lot and she just woke up but it's still sure. recognizably sunnydale you know her friends are still this isn't even this isn't even like when they went to like the alternate universe and everybody's like the bizarro version of themselves where they're like right. you know the opposite of whatever they were like all her friends are vampires or they're dead or all that like no like the scoobies are still like yeah they're maybe fighting and taking care of themselves a bit more than they normally would but they're still like recognizably her friends you know so it's like it, it, you know some of it might be she's misinterpreting what it is that's where she is and what's going on but like i get some like sense of you know a little bit of frustration of like i i thought i got rid of this place and <laughs> like and now <laughs> i'm and now i'm back and it's nothing is it was so clear and now nothing is fixed and like sure you know maybe that's hell is you're stuck and there's nothing you can do to fix the world or you know uh, you know save the day and like we're back to the same old fight doing the same old things where we started and so what did her sort of gift really accomplish um yeah. i'm not saying that's a correct way to be thinking i'm just saying that's how i was sort of interpreting her when i was sort of watching it um sure so, yeah. Um, one other thing, too, that jumped out to me was uh, when the Scoobies see her and her kind of, both with the Scoobies and with Dawn at the end, um, the one thing that, like, snaps her back into, you know, doing her kind of slayer regular thing is when her friends are sort of endangered um you know if mm. the demons are going to attack sure. her friends or if dawn is gonna fall with the collapsing tower that's when she sort of gets out of the fog and you know acts like buffy again and saves the day and then when that's over she's sort of back to her you know uh you know staring into the middle distance and not understanding things and everything um and it's interesting like i noticed like sander xander after the fight when he kind of is celebrating says you know she's herself again but she kind of like flinches away like she still doesn't understand what's going on or isn't you know capable of speaking or expressing herself or whatever 
And it's just that idea of like, she, you know, bringing back that idea of what is the Slayer? What is the Slayer's purpose? It's funny to me that, you know, Xander says it as though like, she's herself again. Fighting is what the Slayer is. She's her, she's herself mm. when she's fighting, you know? And like, yeah, I don't think he so, means it in a callous way. I think he's hoping that she'll be totally herself again at that point. But like, right. that's not the case. Like, that Slayer part of her is sort of, I don't know, automatic. And whereas like her, the rest of her personality is still sort of disconnected at that point. Like yeah. even at the very end, you know, it's yeah. Dawn was, hugging yeah. and crying and you're back, you're home. And Buffy's staring off like, I don't know that she's back, you know, <laughs> like, like physically. Yes. She can still kick butt if she has to, but like, is she really back? I don't, doesn't seem like that to me. Um, sure. You know, so, I mean, obviously there's more to Buffy than her ability to, you know, save their lives or beat up demons or whatever. Um, you know, and there's further for her to go to really be back than just doing those physical things. Hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. That um, last shot mm. of her, like, of, you know, with Don hugging her and sort of her face over Don's shoulder there, definitely, I think, is a very strong statement that you're right. Like, it, you know, when Don's in trouble, when the Scoobies are in trouble, she seems to be able to, like, come out of her funk momentarily but like once that's over and done with mm -hmm. she definitely just again not like like catatonic's the wrong word but like just has that sort of like numbness mm -hmm. or or you know like you said sort of disassoci disassociativeness mm -hmm. um to her like she doesn't really fully understand what's going on or comprehend you know why she's where she is mm. or or what you know so yeah which you know is different too i think from like like i feel like with other seasons like obviously this isn't the first season where we started with like buffy coming back from somewhere mm -hmm. right like it's there's usually in fact like a, like a summer break kind of thing and then it's like oh Buffy's back and like defeats Dracula or defeats you know the vampires you know who are at the college or you know whatever you know going back each season yeah you know sort of the opening is is much more I mean on the one hand it sets the tone for the season but like I can't think of like a single season opener where like at the end, like I think at the end they're all like they're upbeat. It's mm -hmm. like Buffy's back, and mm -hmm. we're here for another season. Right. You know, aren't you excited? Whereas this one, yeah. it's like yeah. it's like Buffy's back, and we don't really know what the hell's going <laughs> on. Like, like we're we're not sure if we should be excited. Yeah, about Buffy's, Buffy's back, back, and we don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so definitely, you know, a bit darker, a bit more ambiguous mm -hmm. about what precisely is happening um 
than I think any other season to this point. Um, and I think I mentioned before that, you know, this is that there, that there's like a book of essays out there called when Buffy goes dark and, and it's all about the last two seasons. And so this is definitely sort of that tone, um, of things that, that there's a bit, you know, difference to, to maybe how things have happened before, but, um, sure. yeah, I don't, I don't want to get down that road too much because then we'll be maybe speculating about what's to come. Mm -hmm. But, um, again, if, if sort of the first episode sets the tone for the season, like, like we have that tone now, <laughs> you know, we know we're going to be dealing with maybe some repercussions of her second death and whatever it is that it took to bring her back from it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, to continue with Dawn, I mean, we, mm -hmm. we talked about, uh, you know, some of it of, of her kind of hugging Buffy at the end and being happy that she's back and everything. But, um, the one thing interesting about Dawn is, you know, her, her speech to Buffy in the end, trying to convince her to come back away from the ledge and everything. And the ways in which mm -hmm. what she said to me, like echoed Buffy's speech to her at the end of the last season, you know, of, you know, she yeah. says she kind of almost deliberately echoes and, and reverses what she said, you know, about, I, I, you told me I had to be strong and I've tried, but it's been so hard without you. I try to be brave and I'm sorry. I promise I'll do better. If you're with me, stay with me, please. I need, to, I need you to live. And it's like, you know, Buffy's thing about, you know, you have to be brave. You there's, you know, be strong and live. There's nothing harder than living all the stuff that she said in that speech mm -hmm. at the end. It's like, that's all being sort of, you know, uh, echoed by Dawn. Um, and yeah, but, and, and I think movingly, but also like, again, that's not what does it. It's Dawn being in danger that snaps sure. her out. Like, you know, those are not the words that totally get through to Buffy, at least not yet. Um, she's not, in the place where she can live for herself, you know, she has to choose to live to save Dawn. That's still the kind of goal. That's what breaks her out. Um, but it's interesting to have Dawn sort of trying at least to sort of live that philosophy that Buffy gave her and then using that to try to convince Buffy to, you know, save herself right. as well as everybody else. Right. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, the the parallels there are, are definitely, uh, I mean, obviously intentional. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, I mean, it is interesting that, well, I was going to say, it's interesting that it, it works, you know, that reasoning sort of works on Dawn, but not on Buffy. But, like, Buffy doesn't really give Dawn a choice. Right. Right. Like there, there's there's a power imbalance mm. there, too, because like Buffy says all that stuff, like living in this, you know, the hardest thing in this world is to live in it. And then she goes and kills herself like like, you know what I mean? Like there's a certain um, 
And I don't necessarily mean it to be mm-hmm. like funny, but there is a certain irony mm-hmm. to what she's saying. Whereas that, you know, Dawn is completely earnest and trying to save Buffy, mm-hmm. right? Like not, not by killing herself, but by, you know, trying to convince Buffy that killing yourself is not the thing to right. do. And so on the one hand, it is a re- role reversal in a way, as far as like the things that they're saying, but the action mm-hmm. uh, that's being intended is, isn't actually different. Cause Buffy like still wants to jump and Dawn still wants her not to jump, sure. but like, you know, but like there's, there's a difference in who's saying, you know, who's trying to convince the other of the right thing to do. And, and the words that they're using are similar, but, you know, completely focused on a different outcome and a different, you know, direction of, of action. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know what to do beyond just sort of acknowledging that that's the case, but, uh, just wanted to sort of point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Dawn, if we're done talking about her and Buffy, I also want to just make sure we bring up Spike. Mm-hmm. Because I do want to say... Well, you're thinking about with, this without intensely. Without spoiling <laughs> any future things. Yeah. Uh, in listening to the commentary, mm-hmm. um, after this episode aired, Marty Noxon. So Marty Noxon is, and again, this isn't spoiling anything for future. I'm just telling you her personal position, yes. not what happens in the story. Yeah. But her position is that the the whole spuffy ship <laughs> uh, shipping thing is not. She she doesn't like that. Hmm. Um, after this episode, doesn't like it in the sense of do, doesn't like the idea okay. of it. Doesn't think that we should, you know, the story that, should that go it's, that direction. That it's a or... relationship that should be encouraged okay. or followed or anything. Okay. Um. After this episode, though, a lot of people apparently wrote to her and sort of said, well, wait a minute, why is Spike even still around? Buffy's gone. Mm. Like, and we even get like, you know, in the first part of the episode, uh, his sort of annoyance at Buffy Bot, Mm -hmm. you know, still having characteristics that, you know, he, he had hoped and asked, you know, to be removed, um, you know, from its, from Buffy Bot's personality. But, um, With with the fact that like all you know pretty much all like we see him at the fight at the beginning, but like after that pretty much all he's doing is like taking care of Don right. while like the others are out doing more important things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And a lot of people apparently took this as, you know, what this is this is Spike. This is more than just a chip, you know, being his conscience, right? Like this is. Spike actively choosing to stay and to help take care of Don and to help the Scoobies fight in the, in the absence of Buffy, who was sort of his reason to stay previously. Yeah. 
Um, and so some people look at that as, we'll say, a moral revolution mm. in Spike's personality. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, I, I won't go any further than just to note that that's what people saw at this point mm -hmm. in the episode and series. You know, we also get the smirk when Spike is looking at the demons raising mm -hmm. hell and saying it looks like fun. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there may be counter evidence, you know, as well. Um, but I mean... But but I just I, I just want to point out that yeah. at least at this point in, in the series, there are people who are sort of making that mm -hmm. argument. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point because, and in fact, I think that only, the smirk only strengthens that position because if it's, if it looks like fun and he's not participating, why isn't he, you know? And, sure, and, right. And, and damaging property wouldn't hurt him. Right. Like, it wouldn't trigger his right. chip. Only hurting people would trigger his And chip. I think, you know, uh, whatever the authorial intent, I think the, 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 you know, you have to listen to what's the story telling you. And, you know, if, if Spike is not motivated by a sense of, at the very least, loyalty, or at the most, you know, genuine love for Buffy's memory, then what is he motivated by? And you have to answer that question, you know? And maybe there are answers. Maybe as the season goes on, we'll see alternative reasons why Spike might continue to protect Dawn. Um, but right now, yeah, I don't see, I don't see why he would continue to do that for, for selfish reasons, you know, like, uh, it seems like his only motivation that I've seen so far is to protect Dawn for her sake. And by implication, you know, he keeps saying like, because that's what Buffy would want. Um, so if it's not that, what is it? I don't know. And it's interesting to me to hear uh, you say that because, you know, here's Marty Noxon as the showrunner. And mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, like, from her point of view, if it's not, you know, love for Buffy, then what is it? You know, what what is his rationale? Now, I say that and I could see uh, believing Spike to have you know, feelings or, you know, whatever, not necessarily being contradictory with not wanting them to be like shipped together. You know what I mean? Like it could be unrequited. Um, you know, sure. it could be a one-sided spike feels all these things. And yet Marty Noxon doesn't think we should ever like get the characters together. And those aren't necessarily contradictory ideas so um so maybe it's something like that like spike may very well have these feelings that doesn't mean that you know uh they're a kind of viable ship i guess but <laughs> yeah yeah um but anyway it seems to me like the only he has to be sticking around for Buffy's memory. And and I think I get a strong sense of 
his care for Dawn too, just as a person. Like, it's not just a thing he's doing because he feels obligated to, but like, he seems to be wanting to protect Dawn for her sake and to, they get along, you know, like they kind of snipe at each other occasionally, but like they hang out and like play cards and he doesn't really seem, we've seen him be like manipulated into doing things that he doesn't want to do. And he'll complain and bitch the whole time. Whereas I don't get that sense here. Like, he's doing it because he wants to. Nobody's forcing him. Um, sure. He would leave. If he didn't care about her and demons attacked, he would absolutely leave. What's What difference is it to him? So, I'm, I'm Marty Knox and I'm, I, I need some convincing, but. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember now because I was listening to the commentary while I was like cooking dinner and stuff too. <laughs> so I'm trying to remember like if she, I don't know that she necessarily denied that he was there because of that. I think, I think her point was more just that people seem to notice that mm. and that she is not a fan of the spuffy mm. ship. Um, also, just to note that David Fury wrote the second part of this episode. Mm -hmm. So she, she, Marty Knoxon wrote the first part. David Fury wrote the second part. Um, sure. That's not to say that like, you know, story-wise, like obviously they sort of had to be in sync on the whole thing. So, right. um, you know, they had to, at least know about and and approve of you know each other's parts of the story as well but yeah. um anyway just noting that as well like we do see more of this spike and dawn together in the second part mm -hmm. um with their sort of like running around town while the demons have their sway mm -hmm. um but yeah so and okay so one other thing before we move off of dawn and, and maybe talk about some of the other scoobies um and actually, I mean, it does talk about this is related to the other Scoobies as well. Um, there's a numbered shirt thing going on. I don't know if you noticed it. Um, and it doesn't matter if you did because it means nothing. Um, but it, it, this is another thing that, like, apparently fans sort of had all their little. This is like the lost. Right. What, what do does it mean? mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, type thing. So I don't know if you remember, but in the last, um, particularly in the beginning, and I don't remember if Xander was still wearing his shirt in this in this part of the episode as well. But in the first part of the episode, um, Willow is wearing a shirt with the number 11 on it. And then Xander comes in, like when he first comes in the house and like Buffy Bot's making all the sandwiches and he's got his toolbox, um, Xander's wearing a shirt with the number 13 on it. And then now... Uh, we see Dawn, and actually, I think she was wearing it as well when Giles um, was leaving, like the whole airport scene there. Um, Dawn is wearing a shirt with the number seven on it. And so apparently there were all these like fan theories about what the numbers could mean. And I don't even know like what the theories actually are. It was just like, again, like more letters and like online forums and, mm. you know, questions like 
why are they all wearing these numbered shirts? And uh, in in the commentary, Marty Knoxon says it's completely unintentional. It would just happens to be what the wardrobe people like gave each of the characters to wear for that day. Uh, you know, maybe the wardrobe people were in on something, but if so, nobody knows what it was and it doesn't have any story meaning behind right. it. So uh, anyway, just thought I'd point that out. It's kind of one of those fun, fun things where like you can, you know, some people really get into it um not us i mean we only talk for an hour about each episode <laughs> each week so we're clearly not in that group of people who get overexcited. we don't waste time but, on silly yeah. pointless pursuits like right that. i haven't spent the last five minutes talking about it then. um but yeah no it's just one of those things yeah. where uh people noticed it people commented on it and it doesn't it doesn't well to your point, at least, it doesn't have any authorial mm. intent. Now, if we if we can read into it some sort of non-authorial intent, you know, that has relevance to the story. Sure. But I, I certainly can't think of any. And you said you didn't even notice it. So <laughs> we're probably safe to move on. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, that stuff is it. fun, though. I think especially when you add, like, the internet into the mix and people, sure. like, have a lot of... Uh, resources at their disposal for like really obscure like numerical significance and like your mind gets run running away with somebody else's um it can be a good time um mm. as somebody who watched lost i say that with authority <laughs> sure. sort of sure. required participation for viewing of that show so um Anyway. So, all right. So keep going with Willow and Tara next. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, for Willow, I'm not sure I have a whole lot new for her. I feel like it's a continuation of part one of seeing increased like leadership and power from Willow. Um, even after, you know, she starts out the episode kind of wrecked, you know, like she's been, you know, knocked unconscious and like, you know, exhausted by this spell. Um, and so, you know, can barely even, she's unconscious for the beginning and then can barely even walk back. Um, but you still see her getting, again that soon stronger and stronger as the episode goes on um you know and more and more confident you know there's that moment where you know he says like the demon says you have enough magic for a kid's party and she's like will you be wrong and Anya's like why is she saying that like you know Willow isn't normally the one to antagonize the bad guys but um but she is now you know she's stepping into that that void of Buffy being gone of we need somebody you know confident who will stand up to the bad guys in a kind of you know strong and witty way and everything um so yeah I don't know that I have is there anything else in particular about Willow that jumped out to you no, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think 
like you said, like, I mean, she spends a lot of the time, you know, just sort of recovering sort of in the beginning of the episode. And then, you know, you get, you get her sort of, again, being sort of de facto leader. And mm-hmm. um, I would just say, like, you know, again, we get more questions from Xander about, like, what were we into back there? Like, you know, Xander sort of senses that there's, like, deeper magic mm-hmm. going on here, if, yeah. if I can use the phrase without invoking any other stories. <laughs> but, um, you know, that that there's something, like, maybe bigger than what they're going on and and tara suggests that too i know you're talking specifically about Mm -hmm. willow here but you know tara sort of brings that up later as well right like hey maybe maybe it failed because we're dealing with forces that are too big and powerful you know bigger and more powerful than like we should be dealing Mm -hmm. with so um yeah i mean i would just say like those are the sorts of things that are going on like willow definitely seems wrecked and and wrecked by magic right Mm -hmm. like she's not actually attacked it's the physical toll Mm -hmm. that the magic sort of takes on her um and um to the point where like she literally has to be carried and then even like once she's awake you know or conscious or whatever like she's you know still not really fully with it and still not able to kind of you know, walk with Xander until like Tara's little Tinkerbell thing. I mean, they walk and whatever, but like, yeah, like this is Xander lead. Like this is what happens when Xander's the leader, right? If there was any question before about why, like it was smart to make Willow the leader. Yeah. Uh, like this is, this is what happens when Xander's the leader. They walk in woods that are not very big for like hours on end, you yeah. know, um, and never make it out. Well, and I like, there's kind of a little meta joke to that too, of like, why do they even like, really like Southern California, like Sunnydale, we have this like giant Gothic wood right next door. Like, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, that, and well, that just makes me laugh. Just like Xander's is, kind of wondering like, why are these woods so big? Um, th- this is, this is of course, probably the same woods where, the cabin was for Slayer Fest 98, right? Like, I mean, where again, Oz runs to transform, you know, when he needs to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like when you need a spooky Gothic wood, this is sort of where it is, but, um, but it, it does seem out of place. So I like that Xander kind of comments on it. Like we really should have been out of these woods by now. (laughs) Like, right. Um, so that just kind of made me smile. Um, but yeah, no, Willow definitely uh, was the, the, the wise choice, even though he regrets it. That was the wise choice for Xander to sort of promote as their, you know, their interim leader. Um, yeah, and with Tara, um, you know, I noticed her, not like a total sea change in her personality, but becoming more involved and kind of taking a greater role, like as an active participant and everything. Um, like so many times in this episode, she kind of steps up, you know, she does the spell to find Willow in the woods and she does magic at different points to like save them from demons. And then she comes in with the ax at the end. Um, 
you know, to save Willow, which she even says was like her first kill. Um, so like you have Tara getting, you know, s- stepping up in her own way, I guess. Um, you know, yeah, acting more like a Scooby, you know, um, you know, and being confident enough to sort of fight demons and protect her friends and do all that stuff. Um, sure. Yeah, and her thing about maybe, you know, it, the ritual got interrupted because it wasn't, shouldn't have happened, you know. It's like, well, we know that it, she's wrong. The ritual did succeed. But it still makes me wonder, it's a good point of like what are they messing with and especially when you have Buffy running around like incoherent and traumatized you know it's it's more suggestion of this idea of was this a good thing that they did what is she bringing being brought back into and is that really the best thing for her um like that idea of clearly this is the right thing to do is not so clear at the end you know implied by you know that ending that we talked about of Buffy sort of staring off like you know maybe Tara's right and you know uh they should have been stopped and they weren't really supposed to go through with it in the first place yeah or maybe she's wrong I don't know I mean Buffy came back she did too like if there's a ends means Mm -hmm. being justified sort of thing going here um well and and the fates didn't stop them so this idea that if it's not meant to be it won't happen isn't you know if that's true then the fact that she came back you know implies that it was meant to happen and it was allowed to happen by whoever the fates are so um right if there's even such a thing right which we don't know so yeah a lot of questions up in the air um xander yeah walking in Hmm. circles in the woods um so i actually just found a um sunnydale map that was uh originally published in buffy magazine number 18 in april 2005 so we'll uh we'll we'll link okay just so that we can see there are actually a couple uh woods slash park areas um but it's not clear which one they they would be in um precisely uh Anyway, so um, there's also a lot of cemeteries, you'll notice, uh, of course, um, in Sunnydale. Right. Anyway. Uh, Funny. It reminds me of, there's that joke in the first season, I think, first or second season, where they're like, why is the cemetery across the street? Why is it night in the cemetery? Like, those moments when, like, your attention is drawn to, like, the, the, you know, geography of... The neighborhood and everything it's funny sure um yeah so xander uh well to talk about xander and anya um 
if possible, Anya's timing is even worse than in the last episode, but he's still avoiding her uh, promptings to, you know, announce the engagement. And she's getting more and more, you know, inappropriate about when she chooses to bring that up. Like, now it's right. like, okay, yes, we have removed all of the reasons not to, but, like, they're, like, in the middle of fights and she's, like, you know... um you know, saying like, well, you know, Willow's down. I think it would really cheer her up. And, you know, she's going to tell it to Buffy, you know, the newly resurrected Buffy to sort of help her, um, you know, come to terms with the situation and everything. Um, but anyway, you still have Xander, like, she brings it up to him and he's sort of, not now, not now, you know, um, refusing to to go there at the moment. So, mm. um, yeah. And I mean, Anya, now that she finally has the store is of course worried about looters. Um, right. and I like that she tells the looters to like, go away. We've already been looted. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, how quickly, right. It's her store. Yes. Like she, she keeps talking about it as her store. Yeah. It's not Giles's store, yeah. you know, anymore. And she's just running it or whatever. It's yeah. He's gone. It's my yeah. store. Yeah. Um, yeah. That moment when she sort of bends down to like comfort Buffy mm -hmm. and it's like, I have some yeah. news that'll make you happy. Yeah. Like, Pick pick your moment. Yes. Um, no, and that's yeah, a, that's a that's a moment where it's like, yes, he's still dodging, but also Anya doesn't pick the best moments either. Like, um, you know, it sort of goes both ways there. Yeah. Um. So the other uh, the other moment, of course, that I I love with Anya is. Uh, when uh, the demon, you know, like the guy with like the razor mm -hmm. claws or whatever, um, says something about pulling, you know, something about pulling a rabbit out of a hat, and Anya's like, "Why? Why would you do that? What? <laughs> what would you do? Don't do that!" Like <laughs> again, her fear and hatred of bunnies is um, rather humorous. Yep. Um, anyway. Always fun, mm -hmm. Anya is. Uh, but yeah, I don't. I don't know that there's a lot with her necessarily, other than continued reminders that they are apparently, or maybe not so apparently, <laughs> engaged. Um, just they haven't told anyone yet. Yeah. So, uh, and like I assume, like we haven't like seen a ring, right? Like there's no so. phys physical evidence. Like I feel like that would be part of the not telling people would be her not wearing a ring. Right. 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 <laughs> um, so anyway. Uh, yeah. But I don't know that I have anything else. So we can probably end a few minutes early unless you had anything. Uh, well, the, since we have a few minutes, the only last thing, which I didn't mention earlier is uh, what seems to be the destruction of the Buffy bot. Um, I don't know if that's yes. the last we'll see of the Buffy bot, but man, that was a creepy scene. And 
you know, yeah. kind of the close. Well, wait, which, which which one? The actual. Well, the the. Pulling I mean, apart, the pulling or... apart, but like, no, I was thinking of the conversation with Dawn later. Yeah, um, I that's what I thought you were talking about. Yeah. But I just wanted to make sure I, I was. Yeah, and and maybe because she's like, <laughs> sorry, my cat is freaking out right now. Um, <laughs> maybe because uh, you know it's she's like i don't know mechanical and like you see the the wires coming out and you know like the prosthetics are pretty good and like to me that was the strongest sense of that like uncanny valley of like you know yes this looks like buffy but also there's something very you know un inhuman and and robotic about you know in those last moments the but also like kind of sad and poignant too um yeah you know and that existential wondering of where'd i go and you know you know yeah. and then the maybe and that's well, when and she that's... dies like you know just in that moment of questioning you know so yeah um and two just sort of even what you were saying before about you know questioning well you know how we were questioning like where did buffy mm-hmm. go like right we don't know. Where has like, she been? Yeah. What, what you has know, she there, seen? There, that, that's not what Buffy Bot is necessarily meaning in this moment, but there's definitely that sense of, you know, the, the sort of parallel thing of not just where did she go physically, but where, where did she go mentally, spiritually, whatever, you know, whatever. We don't know. Yeah. Specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I, or no, how did because how does she say it? She says, "Where did I go?" Mm, right? Yeah. And, where did I? Yeah. Go? Anyway. Yep. I don't know. It's a good question. All right. On that note, ponder ponder that question, <laughs> and we'll be back in a couple of weeks to talk about it. Yeah. In between, then we will be talking about some angels. Yeah. All right. So. Sounds good. See you then.